or an end even more sinister? No one was able to say. Her death was covered over with ambiguity, even as Hemingway's was exploded into horror. And as the deaths and spiritual disasters of the decade of the 60s came one by one to American kings and queens, as Jack Kennedy was killed, and Bobby, and Martin Luther King, as Jackie Kennedy married Aristotle Onassis, and Teddy Kennedy went off the bridge at Chappaquiddick. So the decade that began with Hemingway as the monarch of American arts ended with Andy Warhol as its regent, and the ghost of Marilyn's death gave a lavender edge to that dramatic American design of the 60s, which seemed in retrospect to have done nothing so much as to bring Richard Nixon to the threshold of imperial power. Romance is a nonsense bet, said the jolt in the electric shock. And so began that long decade of the 60s, which ended with television living like an inchworm on the aesthetic gut of the drug-deadened American belly. In what a light does that leave the last angel of the cinema? She was never for TV. She preferred a theater and those hundreds of bodies in the dark, those wandering lights on the screen when the luminous life of her face grew ten feet tall. It was possible she knew better than anyone that she was the last of the myths to thrive in the long evening of the American dream. She had been born, after all, in the year Valentino died, and his footprints in the forecourt at Grauman's Chinese Theater were the only ones that fit her feet. She was one of the last of cinema's aristocrats, and may not have wanted to be examined, then ingested, in the neighborly reductive dimensions of America's living room. No, she belonged to the occult church of the film, and the last covens of Hollywood. She might be as modest in her voice and as soft in her flesh as the girl next door, but she was nonetheless larger than life up on the screen. Even down in the Eisenhower shank of the early fifties, she was already promising that a time was coming when sex would be easy and sweet. Democratic provender for all. Her stomach, untrammeled by girdles or sheaths, popped forward in a full woman's belly, inelegant as hell, an avowal of a womb fairly salivating in seed, that belly which was never to have a child. And her breasts popped buds and burgeons of flesh over many a questing, sweating moviegoer's face. She was a cornucopia. She excited dreams of honey for the horn. Yet she was more. She was a presence. She was ambiguous. She was the angel of sex, and the angel was in her detachment. For she was separated from what she offered. None but Marilyn Monroe, wrote Diana Trilling, could suggest such a purity of sexual delight. The boldness with which she could parade herself and yet never be gross. Her sexual flamboyance and bravado, which yet breathed an air of mystery and even reticence. Her voice, which carried such ripe overtones of erotic excitement, and yet was the voice of a shy child. 
These complications were integral to her gift. And they described a young woman trapped in some never-never land of unawareness. Or is it that behind the gift is the tender, wistful hint of another mood? For she also seems to say, when an absurd presence is perfect, some little god must have made it. At its best, the echo of her small and perfect creation reached to the horizon of our mind. We heard her speak in that tiny, tinkly voice so much like a little dinner bell, and it tolled when she was dead across all that decade of the sixties she had helped to create, across its promise, its excitement, its ghosts, and its center of tragedy. Since she was also a movie star...